I'm Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times, and you're listening to Hard Count, a regular podcast all about the world of sports business. So strap yourselves in and get ready for some candid talk about the world of sports and the money behind them. And welcome to Hard Count for Wednesday, April 26, 2017. Coming up just a little bit later on in the show, we'll have Michael Rapcook. He's the owner of the Dallas-based company, Sports Value Consulting. And what these guys do is they value teams. They're the valuation experts. They tell team owners how much their team is worth. They tell prospective team owners what to look for, how much the team they might buy is worth. And especially, they look at the components of those teams to try to figure out where the value is coming from. And one of the big components they look at is the world of television. And there were there was big news this week in the world of TV as ESPN laid off about 100 on-air personalities, many of them household names, people like Jason Stark of ESPN, people like Jay Crawford, who's been an anchor for a long time, was on Cold Pizza. All these people are out of jobs. Some people we know locally, like Ted Miller, who worked up here for years until leaving in 2008. Lots of people lost their jobs, and one of the reasons is there just isn't as much money in TV sports as there used to be. ESPN has paid, and, and this, this ties into a lot of what we talk about on here, and we've been talking here and in my column, Inside Sports Business, for quite a few years now about the, the bubble that's about to burst when it comes to sports networks. Regional sports networks are especially vulnerable, but also national TV networks, ESPN being one of them. What's happening is these networks are paying all kinds of huge rights, rights fees, some of them in the billions of dollars, for live television, thinking that you know that's the one place you can still sell television commercials because people don't tend to fast forward through live sports. They don't skip the commercials. They just sit through them and they watch their live sports on TV. Well, that's not happening as much anymore. We have a lot of younger viewers that are just cutting the cable cord. They find it too expensive. They're, they're, they're finding they can live without live sports, or and some of them are trying to stream some of these sports uh, on their iPhones, on their computers. Especially This is especially a big thing in, in MLS soccer. They've got loads of younger viewers. I'm learning this because I'm, I'm doing some soccer coverage now. They've got loads of, of teenage viewers that just watch everything on their smartphones. They don't watch the big screen TVs. These teenagers can't afford these big screen TVs, at least I hope not, not at those ages. I couldn't afford it at their age. But they're watching it and they're not watching on the big screen. And the big screen's where you sell all the ads. So obviously there's a problem there, folks. And ESPN has experienced it. We've seen them spend billions on pro football, on college football. And now they have to recoup the advertising money to, uh, to pay for all of that. And, and the advertisers, they don't want to pay it. They're like you and me. They've seen some of the ratings, especially for we've seen on, on uh, in the National Football League this year, ratings down across the board all season compared to last. You see it in the college football playoff. Um, which ESPN shelled out very big bucks for. Uh, those ratings are down. And so it, it's a problem. And, uh, you know, one of the ways you deal with problems in the media industry, and we've seen it at the Seattle Times, is you end up cutting jobs. You have to cut jobs in order to make the books balance. And it's very unfortunate because what we're going to see, and we've seen it in my industry, we've seen it in the journalism, in the print journalism world, where, you know, you cut too many journalists, all of a sudden the news product gets watered down and you have journalists working three times as hard it's not always easy to get the in-depth coverage that you want. I think we're going to see some of that at ESPN. A lot of the names that they cut, you know, especially guys like Jason Stark, uh, guys on the hockey side who I've known for a long time, Pierre Lebrun, Scott Burnside. I mean, those guys are real journalists. Those guys do a lot of work. 
And you know what what these networks do is they end up keeping a lot of high-priced ex-jocks, talking heads, people who are there because they used to throw a football or they used to, you know, score goals or they used to hit home runs, but not necessarily for their analysis and their insight. And you know, people say there's been a real dumbing down uh, of TV sports in this country and this isn't going to help matters any. It's a big deal. And, you know, ESPN's not doing it because it has nothing better to do. They're doing it because, uh, you know, they have, to, they have a bottom line. They have people they have to report to. They have shareholders. They have, you know, executives that are making high compensation to get results, and they're not getting those results. And a lot of it's not their fault. It's just viewing habits. And it's the same in my industry, the newspaper industry. Viewing habits, people aren't reading the print product as much as they used to. They're, they're reading the Seattle Times more than ever. They're reading us online, but we have to figure out a way to make more money online. And the same thing's happening right now at ESPN. You know, they're not, they're not getting uh, as many people subscribing for over $7 a month, and they have to find ways to pay their bills. They get a lot of people that are streaming it via the internet, via their computer, but they have to find a way to generate as much ad revenue off of that model as they do off of the big screen model, off of the TV model. So that's going to be fascinating to watch, and we'll have Michael Rapcook up to talk about that in just a few minutes. Um, you know, we also have a lot of arena happenings here in the city, and, it, and I'm going to keep following this up close as I have for a long time, uh, for a few years now. Uh, but, you know, there's two groups looking to renovate Key Arena, and they're in town this week to speak to an advisory committee uh, and, and show them some of their proposals to renovate Key Arena. Don't forget, the public has not seen the two requests, uh, the two proposals by the Oakview Group and by Seattle Partners. All they've seen is the executive summaries. All we've seen are the executive summaries. Plus, we've done interviews, so we know about the financial models of both the Oakview Group and the Seattle Partners. If you've read the Seattle Times, you know I, I've gone in depth into how the Oakview Group has structured its financing uh, based on individual conversations that you won't find in the executive summaries. I've broken it down for you. I've broken down the Goldman Sachs financing, the $150 million loan that they're going to get now. And then there's an extra $200 million of financing Oakview Group will have access to from Goldman Sachs if they get teams. And I've also told you that uh, the Oakview Group's putting up about $414 million of their own money, a lot of it backed by Madison Square Garden Company, which is their minority shareholder. Um, and then you've also got the Seattle Partners Group. We've told you about the $250 million in public bond funds that they are seeking up front on construction costs. We've broken that down for you in the Seattle Times as well. That's not in the executive summary. We've gotten that through our own legwork, our own interviews. So you know that now because of us, $250 million of public bond funds. And the rest of it, they're paying out of their pockets. The remaining, uh, I believe it's uh, $270 million uh, that they are putting up. That's, again, the partnership between AEG, Anschutz Entertainment Group, and Hudson Pacific Properties. So that part's happening. They're in town now. They're meeting with the uh, Arena Advisory Committee. And I believe after that, they're going to make these, uh, these proposals. There's hundreds of pages worth of these proposals fully public so that we can actually vet their transportation plans. We can vet their financial model, you know, fully, not just based on interviews we've done with them. So that'll be interesting. Uh, there was also some interesting arena news late last week that broke regarding uh, Chris Hansen and his Soto Arena project. This isn't such good news for Hanson because it turns out the uh, Seattle Seahawks, the Seattle Mariners, and the Seattle Sounders have all written letters to the city of Seattle saying that that scheduling agreement they did with Hanson back last May isn't good enough. They're saying that even though Hanson has told the city he has a scheduling arrangement with these teams and with other stakeholders in the area, that it's not a binding deal. 
And supposedly, according to these teams, the whole idea behind doing that deal last year was that they would have a, a tentative agreement and then Hansen was supposed to come forward and make it binding and, make, and nail down some specifics with them. And they're upset because nothing's been done since then. And they say not only them, but there's also the, uh, the public stadium authority that represents um, uh, taxpayer interests at Century Link Field. Uh, the chairman of that group, the executive director of that public authority, is saying that Hansen overstated uh, the, the fact that he has a deal. Basically, they're hinting that, that there is no real deal in place. Hansen lawyer, Hansen's lawyer says the opposite, says that what was done last year was fine for now, and uh, it, it's as good a deal as you need at this stage uh, of, uh, of the whole equation of the process, and that there's no plans to meet, uh, to, to nail this down as of right now. Uh, so we'll see what happens, because the three teams, the, the Public Stadium Authority, as well as the, uh, the RV show, the Seattle RV show, they've all submitted letters asking the city to basically go, whoa, you know, put the brakes on a little on fast-tracking this um, Soto project towards another public vote, towards an, not a public vote, towards another um, city council vote. They're saying, put the brakes on that for now, take a look at, at what they're saying, at the need for a binding agreement and then go from there. The Seahawks aren't saying hold up the process. The Seahawks are saying just look at it first. The other teams are saying, no, we want this process slowed down, stopped, until you actually settle this whole scheduling thing. It's a big deal. They want to schedule events and games and make sure that you know pedestrians and cars aren't tripping over each other trying to get from one event to the other. They want to have something hammered out firmly on scheduling, especially for postseason, for playoff needs. If you've got NBA, NHL there, and then you got soccer going on at roughly the same time, you might have some baseball postseason. Well, no, that, that was a bit of a joke. I'm just kidding. You might have some baseball postseason. The Mariners will have to pitch a little bit better for that to happen, but but that's what they want. So that's what's happening on the city's arena front, and uh, you know it's going to be interesting to see what happens from here in in this competition. I would say, and I've said it before, I think the key arena groups have a leg up on Chris Hansen strictly because Key Arena is already owned by the city. The city knows it needs to do something with Key Arena. If it picks a Soto Arena, it's going to have a huge price tag to pay in order to renovate Key Arena into something remotely profitable. And so that you know puts Hansen at a slight disadvantage. But we'll see. We'll see from here. We have yet, like I said, to see the full proposals, and those should be coming out in the next week or so. So stay tuned for that. So again, coming up on a, a bit in just a few minutes, I would say Michael Rapcook, Dallas-based uh, sports team valuation consultant and expert, and he's going to talk about the ESPN developments um, from earlier today. But first, as we do every week at this time, let's take a listen to our and well, listen. Let's just walk down there. We'll get out our keys and we'll open up our sports business vault. And we'll pull out some of the headlines this week that have made news in the world of sports business, both locally and nationally. The Vault. ESPN announced Wednesday that it's laying off 100 employees, many of them on-air personalities. Recognizable faces like Jay Crawford, Trent Dilfer, and Jason Stark were among those let go. ESPN is struggling under the weight of multi-billion dollar contracts for football and other sports at a time when more viewers than ever are cutting their cable cord. Just five years ago, ESPN had nearly 100 million subscribers. Now the figure has dropped below 90 million. ESPN is trying to shift some of its resources into the digital realm to create a live streaming subscription model. We'll have Dallas-based sports valuation expert Michael Rapcook on in just a few minutes to break down what this all means for the world of sports television. The Vault. 
Seattle's major professional sports teams are demanding that Chris Hansen be made to reach a binding agreement with them on event scheduling before the city takes further action with his Soto Arena project. The Seahawks, Mariners, and Sounders wrote letters to the city on March 31st saying that a deal they'd reached with Hansen last spring needs to go further. Hansen has applied to the city to hold another vote on whether to grant him part of Occidental Avenue South for his arena project. In his application, Hansen stated that he already has a scheduling deal in hand, but the teams say the deal is not binding and that they had an understanding with Hansen that further talks were needed in order to finalize any agreement. A lawyer representing Hansen says the current deal is all that's needed for now and no further talks are planned. Seattle's Department of Transportation is reviewing Hansen's latest application and is expected to make a recommendation on it in coming months. The vault. Meanwhile, members of the Oakview Group and the Seattle Partners Group are in Seattle this week to meet with members of an Arena Community Advisory Panel reviewing their proposals to renovate Key Arena. The advisory panel is headed up by former Sonics coach Lenny Wilkins, restaurateur Ethan Stoll, and eight other community members. The panel will review the proposals and forward a recommendation on to the city. The Oakview Group has submitted a $564 million proposal, while the Seattle Partners Group has proposed a renovation of $520 million. Seattle Mayor Ed Murray is to receive a recommendation from a city executive committee by late June. He will then forward his final decision on to city council. The council will then have to choose between the key arena option and Chris Hansen's arena project in the Soto District. The vault. A group led by former Florida Governor Jeb Bush and retired baseball star Derek Jeter has reportedly won an auction to buy the Miami Marlins. According to Bloomberg, the purchase price for the team was $1.3 billion. The Marlins have been owned by Jeffrey Loria since 2002. Despite a $634 million taxpayer-funded stadium, the Marlins have one of the worst attendances in baseball and have sat bottom third in payroll for years. Their regional sports network TV contract with Fox is one of the game's worst deals and still has three more seasons to run after this one. Bush would be the team's controlling partner while Jeter is expected to take an active role in the ball club. The deal could still take several more months to finalize as Major League Baseball must first sign off on it. And the National Hockey League saw a 4% ratings jump over last year with the first round of its Stanley Cup playoffs telecast. It was the network's best showing since 2014 and its best showing on cable since 2012. What makes the numbers even more interesting is the fact that no series went the full seven game distance. The first round averaged 742,000 viewers, bolstered by 18 games that went into sudden death overtime. Also, the numbers were helped by the presence of five Canadian-based teams compared to none last year. NBC drew its biggest market share in Buffalo, which didn't even have a team in the playoffs. That was followed by Minneapolis, St. Louis, Nashville, the Boston Bruins' stronghold of Providence, Rhode Island, and Philadelphia. All right, lock her up. Let's get that baby locked up nice and tight. We don't want anybody stealing anything. But don't worry, we'll be back next week with more headlines making news in the world of sports business, both locally and nationally. And right now, as promised, let's go on to our interview segment. My next guest is Michael Rapcook, owner of Sports Value Consulting down in Dallas. Rapcook's company uh, specializes in the valuation of sports franchises. They take a look at sports franchises, turn them inside out, and they tell the owners of those teams how much those teams are actually worth. 
They'll also help out the owners of prospective teams, telling them how much those teams are worth. And one of the big components in, in, in the valuation of franchises is, of course, television. We're going to talk a lot about that today, especially with the big ESPN layoffs that just happened. So, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. No problem at all. It's a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. All right, Mike, let's start off with today's big news. ESPN, of course, laying off 100 on-air personalities, part of $100 million in cuts that they've said they want to target throughout this year. Um, on-air personalities like Jay Crawford, longtime fixture over at ESPN, people like Jason Stark, who is a household name in the baseball world, and they laid off almost their entire hockey staff, John Bruchagross, uh, you know, well-known guy who's done NHL and other anchoring for them for years. Then you've got the writers, uh, you know, I mentioned Stark in baseball, people in hockey like Pierre Lebrun, Scott Burnside, people I've known uh, in the past when I used to work in Toronto. I mean, you and I have spoken about this for years. There's a bubble coming in, in cable TV sports, and it's not just ESPN, but ESPN's taking a huge hit right now. What, what exactly is happening in the television sports world, and why are we seeing so many people uh, in the industry of television and in the sports world themselves? Why are we seeing them uh, so nervous when it comes to uh, the trends that we're seeing among audiences? Well, I think, I think that it's been well documented that a lot of people are not um, are cutting the cords, right, for take cable, and especially in that directly impacts ESPN. And a lot of people just aren't even signing up when they're getting new homes, new apartments, new condos. And they're getting their service either through Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV, online, through you, you know, through YouTube. And so that's how they're getting their content. So, And ESPN has always relied on being able to pass on the cost of their service to the millions of subscribers. But I think this Washington Post said that they've lost 12 million subscribers. And when you lose a significant amount of revenue and you don't manage your costs, I think that's one of the aspects as well that happened with ESPN. It's unfortunate that some great names did get let go. But when you're coupled with declining revenue and bloated costs, you have to make a change. Trent Dilfer, of course, is another on-air personality. He's going well-known to football fans here in Seattle. But you mentioned that, yes, I mean, they had something like uh, 100 million subscribers, uh, I would say, even five years ago, and now that's down to 88 million subscribers. Still sounds like a lot of millions to, to those of us who are not in the business, but that's, that's a huge drop. A 12% drop over five years is, is a huge number for any business to absorb. Meanwhile, their rights fees, the, the, not the rights fees, but their subscriber fees, what they're charging to people, I think it went up to $7.21 per subscriber. So they're having to raise those costs. But from what I understand of the industry, what's happening is subscribers are just hitting a saturation point, And they're saying, if you raise this anymore, I'm just going to cut the cord. Is that, in layman's terms, pretty much what's happening here? Yeah, I think you're going to be bifurcated between those who the cost doesn't really affect them and those who really it does impact, right? So one example, and I think ESPN should have seen this coming, because in 2009, I spoke with Rogers Communications up in Canada, and they saw this coming, and they said, we have to move to an a la carte menu in order to offset the decline of the cable cutters and where we see the trend going. So now it's 2017, and ESPN is just now recognizing this. I think that um, it's unfortunate, but I think it does. I think it has a bigger impact overall, Jeff, and where we see this is going to impact all the local media rights as well, right? If you go across baseball, hockey, uh, basketball, right, those deals that are not tied up long-term, 
Right. The Lakers tied up a 20-year term. Dodgers signed up a multi-decade term as well. So those franchises are going to be fine. But the shorter ones, that's what we're going to. That's what we're paying attention to. The ones that are going to expire in the next five to ten years. Are we optimistic or bullish that those rights fees are going to be continue going up? We're, we're not so much. Right? Well, well, what do you we're make just of- for the first deal? Go ahead. No, sorry to interrupt you. What do you make of what just happened with the Miami Marlins? You have an auction in which, uh, in which Jeb Bush and, and Derek Jeter and, and the rest of their business partners reportedly paid $1.3 billion for the Miami Marlins. The Marlins have a TV deal that's up for renewal in, in three years' time. I would think they're banking on getting big bang for their buck to pay anything over a billion dollars and, and up what they're looking at. I mean, is there a chance that we could see some sticker shock there for them? I, well, I think that, um, one, I'm very familiar with that. So we'll just leave it at that. I, I should right? tell my, so, I should, I should tell I, my, I should tell my audience, Michael Rapcock does business with a lot of teams. And sometimes we, we trip each other up because I end up speaking to him about teams that he has as clients and they're not really allowed to go further than that. And I said that on the air, you didn't say that. So we'll leave it at that. Right. Uh, but, but let's say hypothetically, I mean, I mean, a team that's banking on, on a deal, coming forth in the next two or three years, what should they be looking out for at this stage? Well, I think you got to look at it saying, what leverage do you have? Right. And so a gentleman that works with me, the thought that we've worked together for many years, he's, he's been CEO and president of five teams. So he's always said, Mike, when you go into a market, what leverage do you have? Right. In LA, you had time Warner battling with Fox, battling with a number of different major carriers. That's why the Lakers and, and the Dodgers were able to get the right fees they commanded. If you go into some of these smaller markets where there's just Fox or just Comcast, what's your leverage? What are you offering? You can't just demand a higher fee, right? When, they're, when their costs are increasing or the revenue is declining, teams have to have more, right? They have to be able to offer more, and what they're being able to offer is being maxed out, right? So, in other words, if you, if you don't have two competing major carriers, it's hard to leverage a significant increase in your rights. A lot of that happened in Houston, no right? Isn't that what happened with the Houston Astros? They ended up, uh, is that similar to what happened with them? They ended up trying to go outside of downtown Houston when they formed their own network, uh, Comcast down there. They tried to go outside of that, and they, they had no leverage. People just said, we don't want to watch your team. It's bad. We're not going to pay your rights fees. Right. Well, right. With that, then you have to get DirecTV, you have to get all the other carriers to say, we agree to pay this rights fee to carry your network on our on our uh, distribution channels, right? And so if those other networks, just like what happened in, in L.A., let's talk a market that I haven't done a lot of work in, because Houston, once again, he was one of my clients. <laughs> but Sure, so, Los Angeles, same situation down right. there. So, yeah. Right. Look, look what happened with the Dodgers and Time Warner Cable. It's been well-publicized. Time Warner Cable into a long-term contract with the Dodgers, paid them a significant amount of money, right? And so it made the acquisition of $2.15 billion look great. But they only had 30% coverage. Everyone is balking about all the other carriers were saying, we're not going to pay you this fee that you command. So with only 30% max market participant, you know, penetration, that, you know, you always question, was that a good deal for Time Warner Cable and how much of a hit are they having to take? Now they're being acquired by Charter, who has a little bit more of a presence in the L.A. market, but they're still not going to get 100% coverage in L.A., right, unless they come down the right speed. So that's where it comes down to, which is Houston was different because 
they came in, another carrier came in and, and picked up the rights fees for, you know, a different amount, right? That's right. That was... Uh, so you have to have... DirecTV. Right, you have to have... Yeah. So if you... It, teams used to say, we'll form our own RSN. We'll do all of this in-house. The economics are different, right? So, and that's difficult to pull off. And there, that's happened in a number of different markets, not just in Houston. So you have to be able to offer something or leverage companies in order to get the significant increase in rights fees. I think we're, we're I think the growth rate is stalling is is our outlook. So, and that so directly impacts teams. So where would that leave a team like the Seattle Mariners, which formed its own network back in 2013, Root Sports Northwest, and they proceeded right after that to go and extend Felix Hernandez. More importantly, they extended Robbie Cano. Uh, they signed Robinson Cano for 10 years, $250 million, and that contract runs through 2024. Are they in any danger right now of, of, of experiencing any kind of shortfall? let's say, on what they had projected? Do they have to be more cautious, let's say, going forward than they initially might have been back in 2013? I think it's that you always have to be cautious. As long as you're able to get, you know, for them, as long as they get their two sources of revenue, subscriber fees and commercials, right, as long as those meet their projections, then they can spend what they had already projected out to be, right? Right. So, um, but we're just not... We just see what's been happening, and we're not that optimistic that rights fees are con- continue at the growth rate that they have been. And once you see over the next five to ten years a rights fee contract with any team, obviously not the NFL, decline or or even stay flat, I think that's going to have a cascading effect. And it'll be interesting to see how much that impacts the value of teams. So, so what happened here, Michael? Because, I mean, we're talking, going back, I know you mentioned 2009 with Rogers Communications, which, of course, I know very well because they uh, own the Toronto Blue Jays, and I covered the Blue Jays, uh, including the, I broke the story the day that Rogers Communications ended up buying the team, and, and they have been ahead of the game on a lot of issues, but... What happened? I mean, a few years ago, this was considered a license to print money. Everybody was saying live sports programming is the last refuge of advertisers because people aren't going to click through it. They're not going to fast forward on their DVDs and skip the commercials so you could charge a premium. I mean, obviously, something happened with that model. Where did that go from being a bulletproof model to being something now that that's, looks like it's getting more full of holes every day? I think that the American population is being dissected between those who are you know, fanatics are big fans of the sports teams and the younger generation that unfortunately is coming in and whether they watch a sports game or not is the traditional way is, is yet to be seen, right? So can they get it through streaming? Can they get it through, you know, other measures off of the internet? Possibly, right? But, you know, look, my bill I think is 250 or $300 a month and that's, you know, a little bit outrageous. I have 175 channels. Do I want to continue to pay for them? That's what people are going through and saying, listen, if I can get Netflix for $10 or Hulu for $10 or Apple TV a month and I get to see the channels when I want, how I want to see them, we're going to that model. And if we can add an ESPN or some sports network to be able to watch the Mariners or, or watch any other team, yeah, we might be able to pay just for that, right? If I can just pay $10 a month just to watch the sports, I'm fine for that, right? And that's more than the $7.20 a month that they're getting right now. Right? So it's, it's a change, and it's a change driven by the fact that 
the younger generation can get whatever programming through YouTube or, or off the internet when they want it and how long they want it. So Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it makes, it's a different it, dynamic. It makes perfect sense. Different but, behavioral but, but pattern. Then let me ask you this. I mean, as you mentioned, ESPN's paid billions of dollars for the right to televise both professional football and college football. We think of the college football playoff. Billions of dollars spent on their last deal. I'm trying to remember. I think it was $8 billion over 12 years. And the ratings have been down. And, and so every time they put out these ratings, they say, yeah, well, the TV ratings are down, but, but there's people streaming online. But, but part of me wonders then, I mean, when they paid that $8 billion, let's say, up front, they're not thinking they're, they're going to be charging ad rates for live streamers. I mean, they're, they're paying for, like, real um, um, people watching on actual television, broadcast viewers. So, I mean, what, even if they are picking up streaming viewers right now, does that really offset the rights fees that have been paid before, or are they going to have to take a hit short term until those rights fees reset somewhere down the line five or ten years from now? Well, I don't think they're getting the same commercial, you know, rates for commercials on stream versus live, you know, versus the other uh, broadcast deals that they have, right? So I think streaming doesn't count in the TV ratings, so the TV ratings need to be adjusted. I'm not sure how you do that, right? But they will... I'm sure they will find a way to make the economics work, right? But you have to, however, the economics are going to have to fit the behavior pattern of your fan right now. And the fan says, listen, I don't want to have to pay $200 for a cable subscription. I just want to watch this game. They have to find a way to deliver that. Now, if it's streaming or over the top, right, is the new thing that's coming out as well, then they're going to find a way to charge for that and make up their money. Well, not good. If they take a significant hit, then that has a huge impact on the NFL and all the other uh, the other four uh, sports leagues. And we're seeing some that of that sense. right now. Uh, individual teams like like Steve Ballmer with the Los Angeles uh, the Los Angeles Clippers looked into starting his own over the top streaming service. Now he's got one going in Los Angeles that's going to complement his existing cable service. But that looks like the start of an experiment that could see people. Uh, could see teams, I should say, actually decide to go it alone, go it over the top without the help of a traditional broadcast partner. They're not doing that in L.A., but, uh, I mean, when I look at that, I see that, okay, they're dipping their toe in the water, and we could see other teams try to follow this model. Well, I think it's great if Steve, you know, and I knew he was wanting to do that when he bought the, when he bought the Clippers, right? That was one of his plans because their media deal was coming up shortly after he bought it. So I think that someone like Steve, who has the knowledge and, and obviously the wherewithal to do it, I think he's going to lay the path and wouldn't surprise me. Sports is very much a copycat type of industry. So if someone is doing something that's successful, expect to see other people do it as well. Well, we're certainly going to have to follow this story uh, more than just the next few weeks from now, uh, next few months from now. We're going to have to follow it down the line for a few years to see who ends up copying who and who winds up finding a solution for uh, the problems that are now plaguing the television industry and leading to some of the layoffs that we saw today. Michael Rapcook, thanks very much for coming on. All right. Thank you, Jeff, and and, uh, for having me on and great reporting as well. And that'll wrap things up for another week here on Hard Count. I'm Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times reminding you that you can download this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please, when you do, be sure to review this podcast so other listeners can hear all about it and tune in as well. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join me next week. 